With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. You haven't even started talking yet, and you got a standing ovation. No, I I feel like we should wrap it up here. (laughs) We're good, we're good. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's live in-person program here at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm politics correspondent for KQED Public Media, and I'm really excited to be here um, in person with the congressman and with you all. It's it's been a long time. Um, So... Congressman Adam Schiff represents California's 28th district. He is chair of the House Intelligence Committee and, as you know, author of the new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Prior to the 2016 election, Congressman Schiff had been sounding the alarm over the threat posed by a global resurgence of autocracy. And during the Trump presidency, he was one of the most prominent members of Congress advocating for oversight and accountability of the administration and was the lead manager of the former president's first impeachment. Midnight in Washington details how, as he led the probe into Trump's abuses of presidential power, he came to the conclusion that the biggest threat to democracy came from within, arguing that Trump's presidency has so weakened our institutions and compromised the Republican Party that the danger will remain for years to come. We've got a lot to cover in the next hour, and we do want your questions, so um, you can fill out question cards if you're here in the room. You can also put questions in the text chat on YouTube if you're watching this online, and we will try to get to as many of them as we can. In the meantime, thank you, Congressman, for being here. Uh, Well, thank you for being here, and uh, it is so wonderful to see people in three dimensions again. Um, Those uh, watching virtually, I I hope we get a chance to see each other in person, Um, and I just want to acknowledge my wife, Eve, who I I think is out. Yes, there she is. Um, We are Adam and Eve. Yes, Um, I I wanted to point that out if you didn't. But uh, thank you again for for, uh, moderating, and and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for having us. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here, and I was telling Congressman, the last time I saw him was at midnight in Washington in 2019 (laughs) in the Capitol. We finally caught him for an interview as he was going between depositions preparing for that impeachment trial. Um, I was thinking we would open where you opened the book, which is with the events of January 6th. Um, You, as well as all the members of Congress, were on the floor that day. And I think your experience really spells out sort of the visceralness of the threat that the rest of the book lays out. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience on that day and what it was like? Uh, Sure. Uh, About six months before uh, Election Day, Uh, I was talking with the speaker about how we needed to pull together a small group to try to anticipate all the things that might go wrong um, after the election. What happens if the Electoral College is tied? What happens if one state refuses to certify a slate of electors or sends two? Um, And she thought that was very worthwhile. And so there were four of us who were charged with preparing for that day, of course, of the thousand contingencies we planned for. The one that happened was not one we expected. Although Um, a lot of the other ones did as well. uh, Yes. uh, (laughs) You know, astonishingly, uh, some of our worst nightmares did come true. But but the worst, of course, was one we didn't imagine. Um, But as a result, uh, I was on the House floor for the whole time. And and actually, all the House members were not there because of the pandemic. Only 40 members of the House were allowed to be on the floor. Others who were uh, planning to speak that day were in the gallery Um, And as it turned out, they were the most exposed. Um, And I first got an inclination that something was wrong uh, when I looked up and the speaker was not in her chair. It it, uh, had been our uh, plan and expectation that she was going to preside through the whole day as long as it took. Um, And then I saw two Capitol Police rush onto the floor uh, and grab Steny Hoyer, number two, and uh, rush him off the floor so quickly, I remember thinking to myself that I'd never seen Steny move that quickly. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, Eve doesn't like me telling this, but I, I went up to 
Jim McGovern, who was presiding in the chair after the speaker um, was whisked away, uh, and I said, thank God we finally have someone disposable in the speaker's chair. Oh, sure. Um, you appreciated which, that. <laughs> which I thought was funnier than he did. Um, but, but actually, Jim uh, uh, stayed on the floor um, to the very end, and uh, uh, courageously so. Um, but, uh, but I really wasn't aware of the magnitude of what was happening outside the chamber until uh, police officers kept coming onto the floor and telling us, um, you need to get out gas masks, uh, and eventually you need to get out. Um, and I still hung back. Um, there was kind of a, a scrum at the door to get out, and um, and I had a couple Republicans come up to me and say, you can't let them see you. Um, I know these people. I can talk to these people. You're in a whole different situation. You can't let them see you. And my, my first impulse was to be kind of moved that they were Right. They were I mean, worried about me. Yeah. What was the intention there? Do you think? Well, I, I think it was genuine. Okay. I think they felt that um, I would be very much a target of these uh, insurrectionists, um, and so my first impression was to to think, "Wow, that, that's kind of nice. They're worried about my safety." But that feeling soon gave way to another um, uh, because I realized that if Republican members hadn't been lying about the election. Um, then none of us would have to have been worried about our safety. And, uh, and as the days went on after that day, um, and I saw more and more footage of people attacking the police, um, I think for many of us in Congress, it became more traumatic over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the, the feeling I was left with was really uh, just anger um, at the people inside the chamber, the insurrectionists in suits and ties. Uh, my colleagues, um, because the people attacking the Capitol that day believed the big lie. But the people I served with um, knew it was a lie and were still content to push it. Um, even after the, there was literally blood on the ground and we t- returned to the chamber to finish that, that, uh, that uh, transfer of power, uh, they still were trying to overturn the election. And, and it's just, to me, unforgivable. We don't have to dwell on it, but I did notice that you, you know, you all went to what was supposed to be an undisclosed location. At least one member was tweeting about the location. Um, folks, you said somebody who had just tested positive was walking around unmasked. So you probably didn't feel super safe in that location either. But you did go back to your office sort of prematurely and had a pretty close call. I imagine Eva's a little mad at you about that, too. Uh, what Just walk us through, like, how... What was your thinking, and, and how did you end up sort of getting back onto the floor safely? Well, we, we went back to this, this secure location, and the Capitol Police urged us, the House Sergeant at Arms urged us not to tell people where we were. Uh, and, of course, people were already tweeting and ignoring that recommendation, uh, tweeting from that location. Um, and I realized uh, that I, I had neglected to, to even call Eve and let her know I was okay. And I, I called, and I was talking to Eve, and my daughter and my son got on the line, and, uh, and Eve asked me, where are you? And we'd just been admonished not to tell people where we were. Right. And I said, I'm not supposed to say. And then I hear in the background my son say, I know where he is. Uh, he used the find your phone feature. <laughs> so, you know, leave it to a teenager to, uh, to track you down. Um, but, uh, but we were there for a number of hours and I hadn't eaten anything since breakfast and it was now uh, like six in the evening and I was getting very hungry and, uh, I noticed the number of people were leaving the location and going back to their office. And I went up to the Capitol police officers guarding the doors and I said, are we free to go? And they said, well, we can't stop you. Um, which wasn't exactly a green light, right? Uh, but it wasn't exactly a red light. Uh, and so I did go back to my office, and no sooner did I get to the office when I got a, um, a text message from the Capitol Police, uh, not, not to me, you know, specifically to all the members, yeah. saying, shelter in place, remain quiet. Um, and I texted, uh, I, I took a, uh, made a copy of it, and I sent it to my staff saying, uh, is this old? I hope this is old. 
And no, that's a new message. And uh, so I had been watching TV. I turned the TV, the volume off. I looked out the window and could see all of the police vans and cars and uh, just waited uh, for the the sign that it was okay to come out. And uh, in, in classic house fashion, the all clear came in the form of there is food in this room in the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, uh, okay, that's not exactly uh, how you want to give the all clear, but I presume But I'm that, hungry. <laughs> uh, but I am hungry, and I presume that uh, if they're inviting us to go eat something, that uh, it's probably safe to do so. See, politicians and journalists do have a lot in common. We will go anywhere for free food as well. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously when you came back to the floor and continued to make the case that, you know, the election should be certified. Many Republicans still voted against that. Um, but it was there, you know, you have to name names, but were there any conversations you had with GOP colleagues where you felt that they were as scared as you had been, where they understood the sort of magnitude? I mean, or did it really feel like this division that like, like a fissure that almost deepened after that moment? Well, the fissure definitely deepened after that moment, but um, the Republicans were also very worried about their safety. And I ended up walking out with one of them who was carrying this large wooden post. We had these posts that were, were, I don't know how they nailed them to the house floor, that had a hand sanitizer dispenser on it. Um, And he was holding this thing. It still had the hand sanitizer thing on it. And uh, I said, "Are are you really that worried? And uh, about your safety. And he said, uh, yes, I, I think I just heard shots. And he was right. Uh, it was Ashley Babbitt um, and not that far away. Um, and I looked at him and I said, because I, I, he had a member pin on, but I didn't recognize him. And I said, how long have you been here? And he said, 72 hours. Oh my God. And I said, 72 hours. I, I, I didn't really understand what he was saying. And he said, I was just elected. And uh, all I could say was... Uh, it's not always like this. Um, and, um, but uh, I, I could imagine uh, that being his welcome to Congress. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, but yeah, they were, they were very uh, alarmed, too. Um, I think that uh, in the days and weeks after, though, uh, the usual happened. Um, just like Kevin McCarthy, who in the moments after the insurrection blamed the former president. Um, So many of them put their finger to the wind and found that uh, they were more likely to be punished for saying so than the former president. Uh, And so even people who were, you know, helping to push cabinets in the way of these uh, doors to barricade ourselves in were suddenly found trying to diminish the significance of what happened. Yeah. Well, let's stick with Kevin McCarthy. You have an interesting anecdote in the book going back, I think, to what, 2010 or or 2009, where you were on a plane next to him. Um, Tell us us that story. Well, um, I learned everything I needed to know about Kevin McCarthy on a plane. Um, And he and I, obviously, both California representatives, but our districts are probably 100 miles apart. And so we hadn't really had a conversation before, not, not owing to any animosity. We just never, we weren't on the same committees. We, we uh, just didn't run into each other. So by coincidence, we're seated next to each other on United Airlines flying back to D.C. Uh, and we had one of those kind of, you know, nothing burgers of a conversation about the upcoming midterms, which were still six months away. Uh, the House was very narrowly divided. Uh, I expressed the view that the economy would remain good and that we would stay in the majority. And not surprisingly, he took the opposite view. And then the movie started. I'm like, thank God the movie started. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. And we get to Washington. We go our separate ways. He goes off and apparently does a briefing for the press. Uh, Now, this was pre-social media. So I didn't know anything about the briefing. I didn't know anything about what he said until the next morning when... Uh, It turns out he told the press that night that the Republicans were definitely going to win the midterms. Everybody knew it. He sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane, and even Adam Schiff admitted that the Republicans were going to win the midterms. (laughs) And I was just incredulous. Um, And I I made a beeline for him on the House floor. 
And I said, Kevin, uh, if we're having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Um, And I was like, no, Kevin, uh, I don't know how it goes. You just make, and I don't know if I'm allowed to use expletives here, um, stuff up. Um, and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate, but that's, that is how he operates. Uh, and in that respect, he, he, uh, um, was a harbinger of things to come in the Republican party when truth isn't truth and everybody's entitled to their own alternate facts. And you say what you need to say, you do what you need to do to gain power and nothing else matters. Did you ever, so it's, I mean, I would assume after that you didn't build any sort of collegial relationship with him. Uh, no. In fact, I remember talking to Steny Hoyer about this years ago and saying, because Steny, as our majority leader, had the most interaction with McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I said, how do you how do you how do you deal with that? Right. Uh, I mean, if you can't trust at all the person you're talking to, how can you find any agreement, common ground, et cetera? Um, but there seemed to be no uh, no profit in my trying to have a relationship with someone uh, with such little regard for the truth. It's so interesting because he didn't have that reputation in Sacramento when he was uh, in the state legislature. I mean, he's a pretty moderate, easygoing guy. Um, is it D.C.? No. <laughs> but like- well, uh, you know, I don't think that he's ideological in the sense. I don't think he has a core set of beliefs. Um, I, I, I think, you know, like Donald Trump, frankly, uh, Donald Trump doesn't have an ideology. It's just Donald Trump. Um, and, and tragically, neither does the Republican Party right now. Um, the Republican Party doesn't stand for all the things that used to claim it stood for, like standing up to Russia, like free trade, like family values, uh, any of these things, fiscal responsibility. Um, none of those things, it turns out, mattered uh, compared to gaining power and keeping it. And, and for me, this was one of, of two terrible realizations of the last few years, which is a lot of the people in the GOP that I served with, that I respected, that I admired because I believed that they believed what they were saying, it turns out they, they didn't believe it at all. Or if they did believe it, it just didn't matter compared to, can I keep my, my house seat? Can I climb the ladder uh, into the Senate? Can I have a maybe a cabinet post in the Trump administration? And in this sense, uh, and I keep coming back to this in the book, um, I realized the wisdom of something that historian Robert Caro once said, that uh, power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. Mm. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals a lot about who we are. And Over the last four years, it's revealed a lot about who we are, um, about who we are in Congress. It's revealed a lot about who we are as Americans. um, And uh, and we need to pay attention to what what it's showed us. Do you think the same goes for his counterpart, Mitch McConnell, in the Senate? Um, I mean, he does seem like he has more of an ideology and he... It seems to be on the outs with Trump now, which is sort of interesting as well. But and just uh, what's your sense of that relationship? Like in the last week, we saw Leader Schumer and he go after each other very publicly. Um, You know, in my experience in previous years, like you could have those public fights, but still, you know, go out for a drink later. Like it seems like things are not like that in D.C. anywhere. Uh, I I view Mitch McConnell in a very different way than Ken McCarthy. Uh, McConnell uh, began, and I think through much of his career, uh, was an institutionalist, uh, very old school in a way. Um, But that began to change, and this was one of those canaries in the coal mine. When he made the decision to withhold confirmation hearings of Merrick Garland, um, that was about as anti-institutional an act as you could take. Um, it, it sacrificed the interests of a co-equal branch of government. It was crassly political. It was designed solely to um, excite the conservative base to help him gain power or keep power. Um, and, uh, and yet what, what took place over the next four years um, moved him so much further down that path right. of, of shattering the institution that, that uh, he had served in for, for decades. Um, I do, and this nags at me, 
I do think that we had an opportunity after the terrible trauma of the insurrection to turn the, the corner. Um, and you could see uh, almost the, um, the internal conflict within McConnell, recognizing what a danger Trump was, what a disaster he was for the Republican Party, how much he had destroyed this institution that McConnell had served in for decades. You could see him flirt with the idea of throwing Trump overboard. Um, after the second impeachment trial, uh, he gave a speech, I think, on the Senate floor talking about how Trump was morally and practically responsible for the insurrection. Um, but it was only two weeks after that when he was asked, well, what if he's the nominee again? And he said that he would absolutely support Trump. And in those two weeks, uh, we lost the chance to turn the corners of country. And I think what McConnell concluded was that if he tried to throw Trump overboard, that he himself would be thrown overboard. And that may have been correct, but, but this, and this is a question I've asked myself so many times over the last few years, why are you even there um, if when the country really needs you, you're not going to do the right thing? Um, why did you run? I, I, you know, I look at my colleagues. Steve Scalise, the number three Republican, was on Chris Wallace on Sunday. And he was asked, can you tell us whether the election was stolen? Do you believe the election was stolen? And he couldn't answer the question. He wouldn't answer the question. He was too scared to answer the question. Now, I have to think when he ran for Congress, he didn't think, oh, one day I hope to deny the integrity of our elections. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the book is, is, is a lot about this transformation that I witnessed. Um, there have been a lot of books about what's happened in the White House during the Trump years, but not much about what happened in Congress. And Trump would have never been possible. The destruction of so many of our norms um, would have never been possible if he didn't have so many enablers in the Congress. And, uh, and I think when this chapter, not in my book, but when this chapter in history is written, and we have more perspective on what the country's been through, that some of the most damning language will be reserved for people in Congress that knew what they were doing was wrong, um, that refused to, to find the, the courage of the patriotism to stand up to this most unethical of presidents. Will you trace some of this? I mean, we talked about that McCarthy conversation, but back to, and, and I think Merrick Garland is probably another example, but to the Benghazi hearings, right? Um, why do you see that as so illustrative of how someone like President Trump got elected and, and sort of seized power? I think Benghazi was really a, a bridge to the Republican future uh, where facts would no, no longer matter, uh, where even the worst tragedy, uh, one involving the death of Americans, would be exploited uh, for political advantage. Um, you know, we've come a long way from politics ending at the water's edge. Uh, and in the case of Benghazi, um, we did, I think, six or seven investigations of Benghazi before there was a select committee on Benghazi. I was on one of those investigative committees on the Intelligence Committee. It was a Republican-led investigation by Mike Rogers. And we completely debunked all of these conspiracies about Hillary Clinton. Um, and there were other bipartisan investigations in the House and Senate and the Armed Services Committees that reached the same conclusions. There was really no doubt about what happened. It was tragic, but it wasn't scandalous. And um, McCarthy decided, um, no, we need to do a different kind of investigation to drive down Hillary's polling numbers. Uh, and they picked Trey Gowdy to lead it. Um, and that's what they did. That's what they used the committee for. Um, to tear down her numbers. And tragically, it was successful. Uh, and I think if Trump had been watching, he must have been very encouraged to see that you can make your own reality. If you've got a big enough bully pulpit, if you've got a, a media empire uh, willing to uh, amplify those falsehoods, you can sell them. And, uh, and I think that was just a foretaste of, of what was to come. Let's talk about Russia. <laughs> um, actually, I have an audience question before we get into some of this, but can anything be done to pursue investigation for the obstructions of justice documented in the Mueller report? 
Well, I, I think uh, at this point, that's probably very difficult. Um, and we have enough on our hands, uh, frankly, investigating the January 6th insurrection um, and the former president's role in that. And I think that really is where we need to keep our focus. Uh, but one of the things I did want to do in the book um, is point out just what happened with Russia and the Trump campaign. Yeah. Because the way the country learned about the facts was a drip here and a drip there, a drip down over two years. Um, and I think that uh, the combination of the, the piecemeal, overtime, seriatim way the public learned about this, combined with the, the, the really disciplined use of the presidential bully, pit, bully pulpit, the no collusion, no obstruction, really served to obscure exactly what happened, which is pretty simple. Um, and among the things that, that happened, which is pretty simple and pretty shocking, is Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was meeting secretly with an agent of Russian intelligence and giving that agent internal campaign polling data uh, and insights into their strategy in battleground states while that same unit of Russian intelligence was running a social media campaign to elect Donald Trump. Um, now, people ask, well, what's your evidence of collusion? Well, how about that? Uh, and that's just exhibit A. There are lots of other exhibits. But one of the things that I do try to do in very summary form in the book is just set out the very basic facts. Uh, because, uh, you know, Trump very skillfully, he wasn't, he wasn't much of a businessman before he became president. He was a terrible president. But he does have one claim to fame. He is a very good marketer. Uh, he is very good in the way that grifters are really good at marketing. Um, and we need to continually, I think, push back with the truth. You know, I think it's a good point that when you read it all sort of in a linear fashion and with the benefit of hindsight, it, it's pretty shocking. And one thing that did stick out to me is the central role of WikiLeaks in all of this um, and Julian Assange, really. And I'm just curious, like, how you view that, uh, because... You know, when WikiLeaks first came out, I think there was a sense that they were doing, in some cases, something democratic, right? And and I think the view of a lot of people has changed around that. Um, I know there's an extradition case against Assange that has to do with the Chelsea Manning stuff. But, I mean, uh, what do you see as their sort of role in, in that um, when you think about Russia and Trump and, and the whole 2016? And, and how do you think there's any part of the sort of public understanding that's missing? Well, you know, I would say probably uh, what people may not fully appreciate about WikiLeaks and that whole saga um, during the 2016 campaign is here we had the Russians hack into Clinton's campaign, um, hack into the DNC and the DCCC. And they wanted to push out this information to help elect Donald Trump. But they wanted to do it in a way to give themselves deniability. Um, and so they, they chose WikiLeaks to be their primary cutout. Now, they used a couple other cutouts as well. They used DC Leaks, for mm -hmm. example. But the primary cutout was WikiLeaks. Um, and WikiLeaks had to know that they were laundering money, uh, not money, they were laundering information for the Russians. WikiLeaks had to know that they were helping the Russian intelligence services tear down the Democratic candidate for president. Um, and that's not journalism. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I know there are folks that, that applaud their release of information, um, but the uh, private um, Twitter uh, message exchanges between WikiLeaks and, for example, Don Jr. tell a very different story about what was going on here. Uh, one of the most telling, one of the most chilling to me was a message from uh, WikiLeaks, as I recall, to Don Jr. saying, if your father loses, we think he should uh, claim that the election was, was rigged. Um, that was in 2016. That was in 2016. Um, and that's not the kind of thing you do if you're a transparency organization, such and such. That's the kind of thing to do if you have a political score to settle. Yeah. Now, I don't know what his score, you know, Julian Assange, what his score was to settle. Um, I don't know what their relationship with Russia is or their antagonism to Clinton was based on. 
But uh, um, that's that. That I think is a very sinister um, uh, action, and and so uh, I don't view them as an innocuous uh, purveyor of private information at all. I mean. But it is complicated, right? Because it was under the Trump administration that the CIA documents were leaked by them. Um, reportedly, Mike Pompeo like wanted to assassinate him. I mean, it it does feel a little murky in terms of, to your point, like what the, what the sort of goals were. Um, I know you can't talk about all that, probably. <laughs> but like, I mean, how do you think about that? Because it does feel like this is something you know that has has plagued now three administrations essentially. Well, again, I put WikiLeaks in a completely different category than um, other situations where you have the press reporting on information that is very newsworthy. Um, That may also have been purloined. Um, And, you know, to give you an illustration, though, of how I think that should be handled, in 2016, after the Russians hacked these democratic organizations and were publishing this stuff, I remember having a conversation, Steve Israel, a former colleague of mine from New York, and I on the phone with the editor, one of the editors of the New York Times, making the case that, uh, first of all, not every stolen document is newsworthy. I mean, I think they were publishing, I don't know if it was the Times that was publishing this, but they were publishing uh, John Podesta's risotto recipe. Um, So not everything is newsworthy, but, but, and I wouldn't say that, that they could never publish something that was stolen. But I did think they owed it to their readers and, and frankly to the country that if they were going to publish something stolen by a hostile power with the intent of influencing our election, they should let the reader know that. Right. Uh, and, and so my argument to the New York Times was if you feel compelled to print something because it's truly newsworthy, um, you should always preface it by saying in documents believed to have been stolen by the Russian government and purposely leaked to influence the election, we learned that. So at least the reader can put in context why they're getting the information they were, but but we couldn't persuade them to do it. And all too often, the form of those stories, which uh, came out almost daily, sometimes hourly, um, they would they would recite what they found in these stolen documents. At the very end, they would say, we called the Clinton campaign for comment, and they declined to comment. Um, and to me, that was a, a real disservice. And I do think that after the experience of 2016, the press was much more sophisticated about not allowing itself to be used in that way. Um, so I think that the handling of um, this uh, kind of foreign interference in 2020 was was much better. Well, and talk about that. I mean, I, th- I think we have a lot more details about Russia's interference in 2016, but what do you think happened last year, um, and did it differ from, you know, four years prior? Uh, there were a couple significant differences. Um, first, I think that Russia was sufficiently deterred from crossing certain red lines. Uh, so uh, they did not hack and dump documents, which was the most in-your-face um, active measure of the prior election. They did continue their social media campaign, um, maybe not on the same uh, scale and scope as they had four years earlier. But, uh, but they, didn't, uh, they didn't try to monkey with the vote count either. Uh, and I think the reason they were deterred from certain things in 2020 when they weren't in 2016 is they realized that if Joe Biden won, um, there would be a serious price to pay. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I think there was that deterrent impact. The other thing that happened, though, in 2020 was less... Um, less optimistic and less positive. And that is, in 2020, you had the U.S. intelligence um, agencies, at least some of them, like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, um, now headed by uh, Trump acolytes, partisans, who were chosen not because of any particular background in intelligence, uh, but because of their unswerving loyalty to the president. And so... While the Russians were interfering in social media, while the Russians were denigrating Joe Biden, uh, in the same way they denigrated Hillary Clinton, by the way, the Russians were pushing out the false narrative that Hillary Clinton was unwell. And they were pushing out the same uh, false narrative about Joe Biden because Donald Trump was pushing out that narrative. And they were also pushing out, I think, an even more destructive narrative of the president, the former president, which was the elections are rigged. So the Russians were helping amplify Trump's false messages. 
Um, but we now had intelligence leaders who would not be honest with the public about it. Mm. And so you had people like Ratcliffe and Bill Barr and others saying, oh, no, no, don't worry about the Russians. It's the Chinese we have to be worried about. Um, now, the Chinese um, ultimately concluded that it didn't add up for them to intervene. Um, but the, the, these heads of, of some of the agencies were affirmatively and knowingly misleading the public. And, you know, one of the things you do to, to thwart foreign interference is expose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by pushing out this false line about China, um, the intelligence agencies has, uh, heads were essentially giving Russia a green light. Um, and so that was a significant difference from the Obama administration in 2016, which was willing to call the Russians out on what they were doing. Do you I mean, you mentioned, though, the disinformation on social media and like as somebody whose job it is to try to get the truth out to me, that is very frightening because a lot of the things you know we're going to get to around the ongoing threats to our electoral system and our democratic processes. It's not just about the sort of people who are elected, right? It's about the support from the ground. I mean, that is, to me, a huge part of the story. Uh, it is a huge part of the story. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, I think there are a number of factors that made Donald Trump possible. Um, there are serious changes in our global economy um, in which millions of people are working harder than ever and barely getting by. Um, but there are also, there's also a revolution going on in communication where most people now get their information from social media. Uh, and that's a medium in which lies and anger and fear travel with virality. Uh, and we haven't figured it out yet because those changes have taken place with just breakneck speed. Um, you know, one of the things I, I write about, there's a scene in the book where we have our first hearing with the tech executives and it's about Russian interference in the election. And it was, you know, it was kind of a strange phenomenon where the first committee to do real oversight of the tech industry was the intelligence committee. Um, but we went through the questions about Russian interference in the election and, and we did a second round of questions. And in the second round, I remember asking these general counsel of, of Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube, um, well, let's you know, step aside from the Russia issue and foreign intervention. And let me ask you about the impact just on the American people. Um, are the algorithms having the effect of dividing us, of pitting American against American? Um, and I remember the general counsel of Facebook saying, well, I think the data is mixed or unclear. Um, I don't know that the data was mixed or unclear even then uh, in 2017, but it is very clear now. Uh, and I think we're going to need to uh, re-examine the immunity that these companies enjoy. Uh, if they're not going to be better stewards of the truth, uh, if they're going to allow uh, these pernicious falsehoods to to divide our country, I think we're going to need to be much more scrupulous about how we protect people's privacy. That has allowed the the you know the micro targeting of people, um, and. Uh, and I also think we're going to need transparency. We need a much better understanding of how social media is affecting all of us, um, what it's doing to teenage girls' views of themselves and what it's doing to prevent, you know, a meaningful conversation between you and your neighbor. Uh, so, or your family members. Or your family members. Well, I mean, I will say I was heartened by the more recent hearings where there seemed to be at least a bipartisan interest in understanding the algorithms and, and the things you're talking about. I mean, do you think that's something Congress might actually be able to tackle on a bipartisan basis? I, I do. I do. I think there's uh, lots of bipartisan common ground. Now, um, like so many things, we may get to the same place for very different reasons. Right. Um, for my conservative colleagues, uh, they like to push out this narrative that social media is biased against conservatives. Uh, but actually, conservatives... Um, well, they dominate the they dominate, type they top dominate. 10 every week. Yeah, yeah. they ben dominate Shapiro social media. And, company, uh, yeah. and of course, no one more successfully used social media than Donald Trump. Um, so the idea that, that somehow it, it's biased against them um, is, is absurd. Um, but nonetheless, um, 
if it gets us to common ground in terms of um, insisting on uh, adjusting the algorithms so they don't, they're not set to inflame us and divide us, uh, if it helps us be better stewards of people's personal data and privacy, then, then I'll take what I, cooperation I can get. Do you think there's been a measurable effect with Trump not being on Twitter and Facebook? And, I mean, is that a good thing long-term? Is it, like, like is, you know, if he decides to run again, like, do you think that would make a difference? Well, Trump not being on social media, I think, is probably the single best thing for the mental health of the country. Um, I, I, I really... Uh, I really think that uh, if you could take a national blood pressure, uh, when he lost that Twitter feed, it, the whole blood pressure... Well, as a West Coast like journalist, it makes my life easier, right? Because you don't have to wake up every day and go, what happened? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's 6 a.m. Eastern. <laughs> oh, and, and at 6 a.m. I would wake up and, and, and see the president attacking me on Twitter, which is not how I like to wake up. Um, uh, so, I, look, I, I think it's, it was the right decision uh, by the social media companies. Um, if uh, if it, it doesn't matter whether you're the president or anyone else, if you're violating the standards, uh, it should be the same standard. Um, and will it change if he runs for president? Um, I'm convinced he's running for president. I think uh, it would be intolerable to him to have anyone else in the limelight like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or any of these people could become the nominee and get all the attention <laughs> would just be excruciating for Donald Trump. Uh, so I think pathologically he cannot not run. Um, and right now he's got an iron grip on that party, and we have to expect that he'll be the nominee. Um, and uh, whether he is back on social media or not, uh, and, and I realize there are obviously very powerful economic incentives for the companies to bring him back. Um, but whether he's back or he's not, um, he will once again um, have a bigger platform to divide and poison uh, the body politic. Um, and this is, again, why uh, it just so aggrieves me that, that when we had the chance to move forward as a country, when we saw the terrible end to which his presidency came, a bloody attack on the Capitol, um, that, that we did not turn the corner. Um, and now we're going to have to go through another several years until I believe there will be a final repudiation of Donald Trump uh, when he loses the next time. Yeah, it does, though, blood pressure aside. I mean, his base is still with him. I mean, you probably saw that Iowa uh, Chuck Grassley endorsement recently, right? I mean, there's a sense, um, and an audience member has a kind of interesting question, which is that if the situation was flipped and President Biden had engaged in illegal activities, would your seat be in danger if you publicly decried him? Does the Democratic Party have the same control over its, you know, elected officials as the Republican Party? Or as Trump, I guess you might yeah. say. Uh, you know, I, I, I this is a question... Or, or a phenomenon that I acknowledged during the Senate trial. And I said during the trial that I hoped that if a Democratic president did anything like what Donald Trump did, that we would impeach him uh, and that I would be leading the way. Um, but I also acknowledge that you never know until you're in those circumstances. Um, but that the Senate Republicans could not escape the fact that they were in those circumstances um, and they needed to, to follow their oath. Um, is the Democratic Party more willing to be critical of its own? I think the answer is unquestionably yes. Uh, much often to the exasperation of people in the party. <laughs> you guys kind of like to eat your own honestly sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, we, we don't tend to shy away from criticizing ourselves. Um, and that's probably healthy. Uh, but uh, um, but, it, but it, uh, look, I, I profile a lot of heroes in the book because I want people to be inspired by them. Uh, at the same time, I, I make it very clear, I'm not one of them. Hmm. Um, I have a constituency whose views are very much like my own. Yeah. And so standing up to Donald Trump was not difficult for me politically. 
Um, and, and it's why I have all the more respect for people who are willing to risk everything. Um, you know, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger are, are very conservative. Our ideologies are not the same, but I respect the fact that they have an ideology. I respect the fact that they're not willing to propagate a big lie, um, that, that eats at the heart of our democracy. And, um, and there were so many people in the last four or five years who had the choice of doing the right thing or maybe losing their job. Dan Coats, conservative, former Republican Indiana senator, becomes the head of the intelligence community. He does the right thing. He's out. John Ratcliffe, he will say anything, do anything for Donald Trump. He's in. Um, Liz Cheney would not propagate the big lie. She's out of the Republican leadership. Elise Stefanik, hey, sign me up. I volunteer. You need someone to carry the big lie. If it helps advance me in the party, just tell me what I need to say. Um, you know, power revealed who people were. Um, and, and we need to look to those heroic examples. Uh, and, and, you know, frankly, they're, they're all over the country. Not everybody can be Marie Ivanovich. But there are opportunities for all of us in, in our own personal circles uh, to make a difference right now. And I, you know, I ended up, you know, even though we lost that trial, being very optimistic because I listened to Mitt Romney talk about his faith, talk about his children and his grandchildren, show such tremendous courage. And I thought to myself, you know, this is vindication uh, of the founders' belief that people possess sufficient virtue to govern themselves. We don't need to be ruled by a despot. Um, we have very short memories as human beings. Uh, we forget what, what despotism looks like. Um, people are now starting to question whether democracy is even the right model anymore. Um, and and we, we need to be reminded of this incredible legacy that we have and its importance. Well, let's talk about the future of democracy. Um, I think it's fair to say a lot of people are really freaked out right now. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think that this is, it's, it's, it's quite frankly a weird question to pose as a journalist because it feels very partisan, but it is happening on one side of the aisle, right? Where, you know, you talked about the big lie, but we're also seeing the installation or deinstallation of local elections officials who won't go along with that. You know, we're in the middle of our redistricting process, and there's a lot of questions about whether we're going to be in a sort of, you know, situation in the house where you could have minority rule essentially given, you know, the way districts are drawn. I mean, what do you say to people? And we have a question from the audience who, who asks, do you, with the various state voter suppression maneuvers, do you really believe we'll have a democracy in 25 years? Um, well, you know, first of all, let me, let me uh, start with your observation about the, um, it feels odd to ask the question as a member of the press. Um, 15 or 16 years ago, I started a caucus on freedom of the press with, ironically, my classmate, Mike Pence. Um, and it was devoted to protecting the freedom of the press. Um, and I think there's never been a more difficult time looking at the press as an outsider than the last several years where you basically had a decision. You either hold that president to the same standard as every other president, um, or you don't. And if you do... It means you're calling him a liar every day because he's lying every day. Um, but I don't think there was really any choice to be made. No. Um, I guess it's more like the way I have this question written down, which is like, what are Democrats doing to safeguard democracy? And the fact that that is even the question. Yeah. Well, first of all, the premise of the question is exactly right. And that is um, there may be another violent attack on the Capitol. And the president is out there pushing the same big lie that last that left, uh, you know, that that led to the last attempt at insurrection. It may lead to another. But my greater concern is of the insurrectionists in the suits and ties. Um, those around the country who are stripping these elections officials of their jobs or the, or the jobs or their responsibilities and giving them over to people um, who will help overturn an election. It's basically the lesson Donald Trump learned from the 2020 election, which is if he couldn't get Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, to find 11,780 votes that don't exist, he needs to have someone in that job next who will. 
Um, and that's how democracies do come to an end. It's not always by violent attack. Uh, more often it is by the use of democracy's own institutions to cannibalize itself. I think that's what's going on in Hungary, and you've got Tucker Carlson and those other um, uh, madmen on uh, Fox late night um, extolling the Hungarian dictatorial model. Uh, and so I, I think that question goes right at the heart of the greatest danger we have. What are Democrats doing to fight it? Uh, we are fi- you know, fighting to pass legislation in Congress, H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill, um, that would protect um, our institutions, our, our elections infrastructure around the country, that would prohibit the Republicans from doing a gerrymander. Uh, and, and this gets to really the, the structural challenge to our democracy, which is because of the gerrymander, a minority of Americans generally control the House of Representatives. So the House of Representatives is generally unrepresentative. Uh, during the, the first half of a, of a census uh, and, and uh, redistricting because of the gerrymander. The Senate is also unrepresentative because 23% of America in rural areas controls 60% of the votes in the Senate. And that's even without the filibuster. And then you have the presidency itself, which because of the, the uh, uh, archaic uh, function of the Electoral College means that uh, a president of the United States is often elected with a minority of support of the American people. How long can a democracy persist if a majority is not making decisions for the country? Uh, and so those structural problems need to be dealt with, and we are doing our very best to deal with them. Now, we only have 50 members of the Democratic Party in the Senate. Um, and I understand the grave frustration that uh, one or two of them uh, isn't okay. with the program. Let's know. We we almost got forty five minutes and forty before we mentioned Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. So I want I want a little bit of credit here, but we're going to go there. <laughs> uh, so listen, I, the, I I believe me, I feel the frustration intensely. Yeah. Well, do we, you we, think we, we, that... we'll get the we'll get the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill passed? I have every confidence. The voting rights stuff, though, is existential, and that's a that's a bigger heavier, harder lift. But if we're going to make an exception, as the Republicans did, to the filibuster to stack the court with the conservative justices, and by the way, that's the least representative institution, is now the Supreme Court. Um, That's the institution that represents the smallest minority of Americans and still controls. Um, But if there's going to be a carve-out of the filibuster to stack the court... There ought to be a carve-out of the filibuster to make sure that people's franchise is not taken away. Um, I mean, I, I believe there's a vote scheduled next week in the Senate on this, and it's sort of a test of the filibuster from what I understand. Um, I mean, you worked with Kristen Sinema, for example, in the, in the House before she was elected to the Senate. Like, do you think that Democrats will be able to get her and Manchin to go along with this, and and is it is it enough soon enough, right? Like, I mean, will like the midterms are around the corner? Yeah. Sorry, those two questions. Let's stick with Manchin yeah. and Cinema. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, to be candid, I I don't understand where Cinema uh, is coming from. Um, I served with her in the House. Um, personally, um, we got along very well. But I don't understand where she's coming from on this. Now, I, I have a little more understanding of Joe Manchin, uh, who represents a state that I think Trump won by probably 30 points. Um, that's a very conservative state, um, and a lot of his constituents don't see the world as I do. Um, but but do they I, care about the filibuster? I mean, this is what baffles me. I think yeah. the debate on the economic agenda and the detail, the policy details, I understand where someone like Joe Manchin is coming from. The the filibuster does not seem like a thing that people in the real world have such love for <laughs> as these senators. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 and one of the reasons why I have some optimism, I don't want to overstate it, that, that we can find a path to getting this done is during the impeachment trial, I, I got a sense of Joe Manchin. Um, I, you know, I can't claim to know him well, but I got a sense of him. 
And my sense was that if we could demonstrate to him both the president's guilt and why it was essential that he be removed sufficiently that he could explain it back home, mm-hmm. that he would vote to convict even someone who'd won his state by an overwhelming margin. And by the way, Trump was much more popular in West Virginia than he was in Utah. And we were able to make the case to Joe Manchin, and he was able to make the case, I think, back home. And he, he was courageous uh, in that vote. Making the case about voting rights should be so much easier. Should be so much easier. Um, I do think it, it requires, you know, a lot of time on task by the White House. Yeah. Um, and, and a real sense of urgency, which I think the White House feels. I know I feel it. And you're absolutely right. The clock is ticking. Around the country right now, they are gerrymandering Republican states uh, to once again try to uh, impose minority power on the country. Um, and, and so, you know, I hear this big tick, 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 tick uh, every day uh, when it comes to whether the House is going to be representative. Yeah. I mean, some of the debate that we're kind of alluding to is about sort of bigger policy and political challenges. And the the Democratic Party is a big tent. And you do have people like Manchin and, you know, people like most of our Congress people in California who are representing much bluer districts. I mean, do you... There's been a lot of postmortems of the last few elections and whether, you know, last year defund the police was a big... played big, whether the Green New Deal, you know, Herb's moderates. I just wonder what how you think about this, because I think especially in the House, you have to learn how to navigate all these different, not just personalities, but sort of political positions. Um, Is there a lesson out of last year about messaging and and where Democrats should go in 22? You know, there are a lot of lessons um, about the last election. And um, I think, you know, in very broad terms, what happened in the House, uh, where we... Our, our phenomenal challengers got wiped out, um, which was a terrible, I think, loss for the country because the class of 2018 that produced the Alyssa Slotkins and Elena Luria's and Tom Malinowski's and so many other Andy Kim's, that was the strongest class in Congress I think we've ever had, mm-hmm. uh, at least within the last half century. Um, I will put them up against the Watergate babies or anybody else. The class of 2020 was every bit as good but they just had lousy timing. Mm. Um, and what happened to the class of 2020 is there were enough Republicans and conservative independents who were so, um, so upset uh, at what Donald Trump was doing to the country that they would vote for Joe Biden. But that didn't make them Democrats. And as they traveled down the ballot, they reverted to form uh, and voted Republican. Um, and as a result, uh, unlike what you often have where a president of uh, one party will sweep into office, particularly in the first election, a bunch of people from the same party, um, there was actually a downward drag on the ticket. Um, now, when we look forward to the midterms, I suppose the good news in that is the reason why historically the party uh, in power loses seats in the midterms is because the president of their party swept into office all of these people who didn't really... Uh, represent uh, the the majority in that state that is the partisan majority. Um, well, that was not the case uh, in the last presidential cycle. So um, uh, we're we're in a better situation uh, to deal with the midterms than normally the party would be in power in the White House. Um, and if you look at the mid the the special election that we had a couple months ago in New Mexico, mm-hmm. the Democratic candidate not only won that special election but outperformed Biden, um, which tells me that the, um, the, the determination to vote among Democrats is as intense as ever. But without Trump on the ballot, uh, there are still a sizable number of Republicans uh, who will not bother going to the polls. Well, back here at home, we have seen several districts in Orange County flip back and forth in recent cycles. Um, and of course, there was that awful oil spill a few weeks ago. Do you think that's going to have an impact on the seats that you know Democrats lost a few years ago, Michelle Steele, Young Kim? Um, I think that uh, it will serve to underscore um, the the very sharp differences between the parties when it comes to the environment. 
um, when people uh, see th- things as tragic as that. Uh, they're reminded once again of um, not just jobs in the oil industry, but all the jobs in tourism and, and all of the ecological damage that is done. Um, and so, uh, look, I, it was an awful thing that happened. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that the Republicans should take any kind of solace that they think it's going to help them politically. I, I don't think it will. Um, more broadly, every time we see statistics like we just did, that California had its hottest year in, right. I don't know, what, 100 years or more, uh, when we see uh, the proliferation of these terrible fires, um, uh, more uh, devastating hurricanes and storms, uh, when we see parts of the country uh, in Virginia that are underwater, um, I don't know how much more it's going to take before people realize that this is this is urgent. Um, and, and in that sense, I don't think uh, I'm a supporter of the Green New Deal. I don't think um, that's politically uh, fraught like some of my Republican colleagues uh, seem to think. Uh, so much of what the Democratic Party is doing is supported by the overwhelming majority of the public. Um, the challenge we've always had as a party is because, as you say, we are so diverse, um, it's, it's much more challenging to get everybody on the same page message-wise. I mean, when I need to find one of my Republican colleagues uh, on the other side of the aisle and I go over to the other side of the aisle to look for them, it's really hard because they all look like me. Um, and when you're a very homogeneous party um, that answers to a central authority uh, or authority figure in this case, it's much easier to control message. Uh, they also have something we don't have, which is they've got that whole media infrastructure um, that uh, that amplifies their message uh, relentlessly, um, whereas you know the uh, Democratic Party has a lot more different voices, and and here we are in a very evenly divided Congress. Well, last question then. Looking at Build Back Better, the economic uh, plan and the infrastructure deal. Um, you know, I talked to Speaker Pelosi last night at KQED, and she's very confident those will get passed. But it does look like the bigger one will get scaled down a little bit. Um, I'm just curious how you're thinking about that and, 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 you know, in your conversations with colleagues, because, you know, things like climate change, some of those policies are not things Americans will see overnight in terms of the impacts, right? Some of the social programs and others, they might. Um, I mean, what, what, what is your advice to your own caucus when you think about how to maybe do a little less but still make it impactful? Well, first of all, I, I'm with the progressives. I want as big a package as we can get. Um, but I, I, I would say a couple of things. First, we've been too focused on the number. Uh, you know, what we do is going to be I paid for. No. no, I know you did. I know you did. Um, you know, what we do is going to be paid for. So the number is really zero. Um, and I, I think it's it's wise that we're starting to look at, um, uh, in order to get the votes, the duration of what we're going to pass to bring down the cost rather than taking things out. Um, but I had one colleague uh, who, who who asked me a question that really helped put all this in context for me. And he said um, that he thought we'd made a mistake with the expectations game. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked me, what if I told you at the beginning of this year that within the course of a single year, we were going to pass a rescue plan that lifted half the children in poverty in the nation out of poverty, that was going to help uh, small businesses stay alive, that was going to help people put a roof over their head. But that wasn't all we would do. Um, we would also pass a major infrastructure bill uh, that would help rebuild our roads and our highways and our electrical grid. But even that wasn't all. We would also pass a mammoth bill that would invest in early childhood education and child care and expanding Medicare to cover vision and dental and hearing and invest in a green new economy. Uh, what if I told you that we were able to do all that? And I said, Oh my God, I, I would be astonished. I would be thrilled. I would, I would think nothing like that has been done since the New Deal. Um, and I, I am worried that, that uh, 
if we if we don't hit a certain number, that some are going to feel, oh, you know, this is disappointing. Right. When what we're doing is transformative, um, and and what we're doing is um, not only so vital to people's everyday lives and making sure the economy works for everyone, but it's so integral to to protecting our democracy because at the end of the day we need to show that democracy can deliver. Um, and, and I share the speaker's optimism. We're going to get this done. Um, last week or two weeks ago, that was Act 1. And I, I fully expected, you need to go through Act 1 before you get to the end of the play. The only question I have is, is this an, sure. a two-act play or a three-act <laughs> yeah, exactly. play? exactly. Uh, and I am hoping to pray it's a two-act play, but uh, whatever many acts uh, it is, uh, it's going to have a very successful conclusion. All right, we will leave it there. Thanks to Congressman Adam Schiff for joining us today and discussing his new book, Midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our democracy and still could. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both in-person and virtual programming possible, you can visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Marisa Lagos. I can't even say my own name. (laughs) I am Marisa Lagos. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you all for being here. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.